The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, we'll start now. Welcome. And uh, just to acknowledge, um, for those of you who I know, uh, I can't speak to individually, it's just really sweet to see you here. And for those of you I haven't yet met, I look forward to meeting you. So um, we'll start with a meditation. So go ahead and do what it is you do to help yourself come into a practice of formal meditation. Adjusting your posture, perhaps. Perhaps feeling your feet firmly planted on the ground if you're seated or your bottom and the tripod of your legs and your feet, your knees and your feet and your bottom if you're sitting cross-legged. And just sort of like a snow globe settles after it's been shaken, letting your awareness and attention slowly settle here into this seated or laying down posture. Just feeling more and more of your physical presence with each exhale. Maybe just taking a few deep, longer inhales and exhales to start. Just helping the system, the nervous system, and the mind and body to sort of reset and let go of what's not necessary to be holding on to or attending to in this moment. So with that big exhale, just inviting whatever letting go wants to happen, to happen. be helpful, can be helpful, to wish ourselves a sense of ease or well-being during this meditation. May I be at ease here with whatever is present now and whatever may arise. May I notice any sense of well-being during my meditation. And maybe, maybe just noticing if there's any difficulty settling, acknowledging whatever things sort of are persisting or nagging or pulling. The image I sometimes like to use is um, that I'm in a large room, very large room with a big round table in the center. And there's room for everything. There's a seat for everything. So as you check in with yourself and things that might be pulling on your attention, things left undone, 
things that maybe continue to need processing. None of it needs to be gotten rid of, but rather it can be an invitation for things to have a seat, a resting place. It's all welcome. Just giving everything space without needing to pick it up or figure it out. And this idea of space or a large room can be very supportive of mindfulness practice. So it might be interesting to try just continually just noting when you are aware of something in your meditation. Just sort of with the next inhale, see if you can open up around it. Perhaps you'll be moving now into a space in your meditation at some point anyway where the breath becomes more apparent or sound or sensation or hearing. Maybe you use a combination of those things to help ground you in your practice. Practicing being and noticing present moment experience. Very simple, really. Not easy, maybe, sometimes, but simple. Just getting yourself established in what you want to use as your sort of supportive anchors for your meditation practice today. Whatever brings more ease. a sense of letting go or relaxing into right here. Right here. And saying yes to this. Relaxed, open, aware.
In the last minute of the meditation, just noticing the quality of body, heart, and mind. Recognizing any settling, any ease that might be present. Just taking a moment to appreciate yourself for the practice, for coming today. And for whatever freedom or insight is present for you here. So, um, my name again is Tanya, and I just want to start by um, saying, yep, the topic is right view. I'm going to try and weave in examples of um, right view, talk about what is right versus wrong, and um, how do we understand and hold this factor. And Chris started by saying, you know, it's helpful to have a clear view of where you're going if you're going to go on a trip, right? And um, so maybe even just in the process of meditation, you can notice how you maybe had other thoughts and worries in your mind that were affecting your ability to notice present moment, right? At the beginning versus the end of the sit, and that the process of meditation is designed to help us be able to connect more clearly and cleanly with the present moment. And so, you know, right view is about um, the ability to be able to see, see clearly. Um, it's not, it's not a, a philosophical or um, kind of a belief it's actually more like clear seeing. It's a, about direct and present moment experience, being able to connect with it. So it's not an opinion, but more, again, this perspective, like when you can see. So sometimes there's a lot of weather and you might go to the top of a mountain and you can't see anything. You can't even see the ground in front of your feet because the density of the fog or the clouds is so great. And sometimes from that mountain there might be a spectacular, clean, clear, bright sky and you can see a very long distance. And, you know, depending on what you want to see, what side of the mountain you stand on matters. So it's this perspective, right? Where, what are we looking at? How's the weather? What direction are we looking at? 
And if we want to go north, it doesn't so much help to look south, right? So, in terms of this idea of the word right, uh, we often, in this language, associate right with um, someone being uh, um, right and someone being wrong, right? Someone um, getting it and somebody not getting it. Or, you know, it's a moral judgment, right and wrong. Uh, on this path, really what's meant by right is um, what's correct for a particular situation. So is it the right tool? Is it the right perspective? Again, for if you want to go south, are you looking south? If you, you know, are climbing in the snow, do you have snow boots on? Right? If it's an easy path, are just some supportive tennis shoes good enough? So is it the right tool for the, the endeavor that you have in front of you? Snow boots are great. Tennis shoes are great. It's not that one is the correct one, right? In terms of wrong, um, just, you know, a hammer doesn't work very well to put a screw into a piece of wood. Sometimes we need a hammer, sometimes we need a screwdriver. So this, um, for this reason, this is part of the wisdom factor, we need to understand and know what tools we need. We need to understand and know what direction we're going in. So this is the wisdom part, you know, one of the two wisdom factors in the Eightfold Path. And one of the main teachings um, is of having right view, um, right understanding, is based on the Four Noble Truths. So I'm going to tell you what all Four Noble Truths are. Um, You probably know them, but um, I'm going to talk mostly about the first two, and Chris will talk more about the the last two. But the first Noble Truth is that there is Dukkha. And Dukkha is kind of a a broad category of things that mean everything from kind of discontent or stress to unsatisfactoriness to suffering. And sometimes you'll hear um, misquotes of the Buddha that say life is suffering. And that's not what the Buddha taught. Now, I'm not a Pali scholar. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm here as a spiritual friend, right? So I'm speaking as a spiritual friend. And this is based on my faith, my understanding, Right, so I'll, I'll share with you my perspective. And, you know, so there is this dukkha, and it's a nice word to use because it means all of these things, whereas our language is once we start using stress or suffering or discontent, we've kind of boxed everything down. And so we're going to try and broaden our perspective, our associations, and use this word dukkha. And it's to be understood. That's the idea of the first noble truth. To see that there's dukkha and to understand it. And the second noble truth is that there is a cause for the dukkha. 
And um, in general, that's said to be clinging. Holding on to things or maybe trying to use that hammer to put a screw in even though you know it's not working. So we cling to the tool that we're trying to use even though it's not working. And that's to be abandoned. Get a hammer or a screwdriver instead. And then the third noble truth is that um, dukkha ends. It ceases when we stop clinging. So when I stop trying to make the hammer put the screw in the wood and I use a screwdriver... the suffering or the dukkha, the dissatisfaction is resolved. And then the fourth noble truth is that there is a path, which is this eightfold path, that leads ultimately as we practice to the cessation of dukkha, to the ending of it. And this is a path to be developed. So let's talk a little bit more about what dukkha is. In the most subtle form, it's really just a lack of ease. You know, it can be very subtle and unrecognized by us. We can think that we're happy and fine until we get quiet enough, until the snow globe settles enough to start seeing that really part of this is just due to the simple neurobiology of our being, which is we have a brain that there's something called in neuroscience a default network mode that within a very, I don't know if it's a fraction of a second or a fraction of two seconds, if we are not actively engaged in a task, it starts to offer, proliferate ideas, thoughts, to-dos, nexts, so the, the, there's just this little puffing out thinking machine. <laughs> it's like creates those clouds in the sky, just puff, 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 until, or you know, inevitably, we start to get on one of the clouds. We start to get engaged in one of the thoughts, because that's its intention. The job of this part of our brain is to be, have us be productive, be doing something, thinking planning but it's a little relentless (laughs) if you haven't noticed so um, another way we can think about dukkha is it's a resistance to the way things are dissatisfaction discontent you know this would never have happened if you know um, if only um when, <laughs> when it finally, you know, there's a lot of ways that, you know, we're subtly resisting or dissatisfied with our experience, with our life, the way it is, our present moment. Um, it can be felt like irritation. Um, it can be felt as tr- out and out suffering. We really feel like we're beyond our capacity to tolerate what is happening in our experience. And um, the amount of dukkha present can be thought of as relative to our resistance to it. I particularly am fond of this equation. 
it said that um, pain times are multiplied, our resistance to it equals our suffering, equals our dukkha. So if there's just a small amount of dissatisfaction or a small amount of stress and there's not a lot of resistance to it, we may not have any or a very small amount of dukkha. But it could be a small amount of pain or uncomfortable, but a great deal of resistance to it or a great amount of pain and a terrific amount of resistance to it. And we're going to have greater and greater amounts of suffering, dukkha, as a result. There's um, a sutta called the Salatha Sutta in um, Samyutta Nikaya. And um, in it, some monks are asking the Buddha about, well, what's the difference, you know, between a monk or, a, you know, somebody who's gone forth and a, sort of an uneducated person's experience of, um, you know, pain and loss and grief in our life. And... So the Buddha um, didn't say life is suffering, but there is suffering in life. It's a difference, right? So, and a lot of that suffering is built into life. It's just, it's part of it. And so is the joy. The happiness, the pleasure, you know, and the stubbed toe hurts, period. Hurts, period. And so the um, these monks were well. What what's the difference, you know, between the suffering or the pain in my life and you know somebody else's life? And the Buddha says, and some of this language is old and a little, you know, I don't know, hard to relate to. So, but we'll we'll just hear the Buddhist words for a moment. The Blessed One said, when touched with a feeling of pain. The uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person sorrows, that's us, right? Run-of-the-mill, ordinary people, grieves and laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught. So he feels two pains, physical and mental. Just as if, he were sh- um, if they were to shoot a man with an arrow and right after were to shoot him with another one, so that he would feel the pain of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats his breast, becomes distraught, so he feels two pains, physical and mental. So the first arrow is said to be like, if you stub your toe, it hurts. Right? This is unavoidable. This is part of being a human being in a body. And the second arrow, and then maybe sometimes the third, fourth, fifth, sixth arrow, you know, and so on, is all the additional arrows that we add because we think if we stub our toe, we're embarrassed, we're a klutz, we're getting old, we're out of shape, um, that's not becoming, we're, you know, all, we could have fallen, and then, you know, we could have broken our bones. So there's all these ways that we can start to imagine and proliferate and kind of um, expand on just the simple stubbing our toe experience, right? Make sense? Okay. So how do we relate to dukkha with right view? This is really the main teaching of the Buddha. Um, 
It's, it has been misquoted again as um, his exclusive teaching, like some people have quoted. In, in fact, even Bhikkhu Bodhi has quoted or referred to this as, I teach only one thing, one thing only, the, um, the suffering and the end of suffering. But it's, it's, um, it's actually not an exclusive thing he teaches. He does teach other things, but it is a primary focus. And what he actually said, according to the most recent teaching and translation of Bhikkhu Bodhi is, in the past monks, as also now, I teach suffering and the cessation of suffering. And so um, in that, what he talked about was there are three ways to break up our experience of suffering, three ways to think about kinds of different kinds of dukkha. So the first type is the pain of pain. Right? So body or mental pain, emotional or physical pain, and the pain for having that pain. So that's the first, right? So, um, yeah. The second is the pain of change. So, you know, things change. They're impermanent in terms of, like, we age. We're not always the same age, right? Um, Companies and jobs change. Partners change. Kids change. You know, life is lots of, includes a lot of different change. Um, Yeah. And then the third type is the pain um, that I've simplified just to call the pain of mental construction or it's kind of the thinking where you're constructing. So this is um, often referred to also as mental formations. Um, And... Simply put, this is when we worry about the future. We have remorse about the past. It's the images that can come to mind, including those things imagined and remembered, and can become haunting in the case of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder for people who have intensive flashbacks. It's rumination, so reliving, rethinking in a circular way of thinking, thoughts, which causes depression. Um, it can be mind reading, right? Where we think we're reading other people's minds. Um, and that leads to, you know, miscommunication, misperception, conflict, loss of opportunities. It can be future tripping, right? What we refer to as future tripping, where we just get off and sort of into this fantasy of what, what's next, what's going to happen. So these are all, those are all types of sort of mental construction, pain from mental construction, mental formations. So an example from my life with pain of pain. I don't know why, you know, I don't know why at the time I was fully an adult, I was a parent, it was time to go get an immunization and for some reason, I was kind of like afraid of the pain of the immunization. I just was. How many times have you had an immunization by the time you're in your late 30s? A lot, right? So I braced my arm. Have you ever done it? Have you ever done that? Oh, my God. Oh, I couldn't believe it. So I, my arms tense and braced, and I get this shot, and I bench, gotten a lot of shots. I was, you know, bracing against that pain. 
This was a hundred times worse, and it lasted so long. My tight muscle made the pain so much worse. So, you know, here I was resisting simple pain, and I got pretty much more profound, long-lasting pain. Of course, it went away, but that was a really great example for me of how that resisting of a normal pain that was being done for a good reason, you know, for my health, um, created a lot more discomfort for me, you know, dukkha. Um, Pain of constructing thoughts. Um, Boy, yikes. you know, this this happens all the time. And of course, who, who here has been on a retreat? Anybody been on a retreat? Yeah, it's sort of like a magnifying glass for this problem to be noticed. You know, you, you just, it's like all of a sudden, you know, you just see that your mind, and you can see this in a period of meditation, but sometimes it's one of those days where you sit down, and it's just like, oh my God, it just wants to, go off here and there and it gets or it gets fixated on certain things you know and just constructing these realities gil tells a story about designing a helicopter once on retreat right he's not an engineer <laughs> and the kinds of things that i've constructed in my own mind um i've been it's so it's such a waste of time it's really amazing and when you're sitting there on retreat and you know everything's devoted, everything's being taken care of for you. Your food, you know, your, all the chores, all these things. You know, all you have to do is be. And what are you doing? <laughs> you're creating helicopters, right? So that can bring a lot of pain to our lives. Another personal example of, um, for me, of the change, pain of change um, happened in a pretty profound way for me. Um, I was in a, uh, a marriage, w- 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 which at the time would have been called a domestic partnership. And we made this vow um, to not to be together forever, but to stay together until it wasn't working anymore. Right? To be very clear and honest with each other about the need to end or move on or change. There was a real intention on our part to not say we're going to stay together forever. And if that happened, that would be great. That would be awesome. That would be ideal. I was certainly hoping that that would be the case. But we had this commitment ceremony, and this was our vow, was to to this idea of integrity and honesty. And I was pretty attached to this commitment. (laughs) And so... One of the things that I noticed that was that like as our as time went on because we were together for eighteen years as time went on, I was very critical of our friends who some would break up or one of them would have an affair and they might stay together and just this idea that people weren't being honest like you know come on you just you're being honest with each other and be real about what's going on um, but I, I I noticed I felt you know I really felt invulnerable to that myself. I thought, that's not going to happen to me. I made a different vow. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't, I really just it was building a sort of a, a sense of separation between myself and 
people. And eventually, um, what happened was I was so attached to this uh, commitment and this idea of permanence to this commitment that when my partner was having an affair, (laughs) despite evidence, despite my questioning and asking if this was the case, and my partner saying, no, 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 I doubted myself instead of doubting the truth, which was that they were having an affair. And I really taught me the lesson that, you know, staying kind of more committed to have holding a view or an idea. One, I was more and more separated from others. Two, I became separated from myself, from what I knew, from my own wisdom. And that was very injurious. That was very painful. Very, very painful to go through. Um... You know, things change and our perspectives change and our abilities change. What we like and what we'd like to be able to do changes because things change. You know, they, they, it, it just, they do. And it's important for us to, um, you, you know, really this is where we come back to this perspective idea. It's not about holding to some fixed view or fixed idea or fixed notion, but rather trying to see clearly what's here now. What's going on here now? What's happening here now? One other example was actually um, had to do with the pain of um, all three at once. Right. So my back went out and so I had fear of imagined future and not being able to be capable person with running, hiking, gardening. That's about how I'd never, so my, then my mind would proliferate, seeing my sort of story and what things would happen. Thought I'd lose my partnership because of this at the time. You know, all of this stuff and um, the lack of guarantee that anybody could tell me I'd be fine again. So it also, we can have dukkha in all three areas around one thing. So it's not that it has to be one kind or the other. So, I have to speed up a little bit here, but um, so my, I'm going to talk a little bit faster, just to say a few more things, and then we're going to move into small groups. But I wanted to say how happy and excited I was about getting to talk about dukkha today. That my relationship to seeing and understanding dukkha has changed so much over time that it actually brings kind of a sense of joy to me. That what I've learned is that when I recognize the presence of pain or suffering, it's very likely that that also means I can reduce my suffering. And that over time I started to develop this sense of trust or faith in the truth that I could do something about how I was relating to my experience that would help me. And then, you know, as a result of this happening over and over again, you know, I, I would start to get happy. I would almost immediately start to feel happy when I started to notice the presence of dukkha. And then when you feel the sense of happiness, I'd feel the sense of happiness, there was more energy to do whatever I needed to do about the suffering. So in short, as I started to practice with this idea of right view around suffering, just want to see suffering. I want to have right view of suffering, any kind of suffering. 
As I did so, faith started to arise. There was more and more faith in the Buddhist teachings that would come because the more I saw it, the more I learned that, oh, this could be a gateway. And then the more I did that, the more joy and happiness would come and the energy would come. And then sometimes, you know, when you get through this, you even get to this place of peace. You feel this peace or tranquility because you have developed this understanding. And the understanding, the idea is um, a right view of dukkha can be, dukkha is a signpost. It's the flashing exit sign. It says, this way out. (laughs) Dukkha is like the rumble strips on the side of the freeway that when you run over them, wake you up and stop you from having an accident. Now, it's loud and it's unpleasant, but it wakes you up and helps you say, this way, this way. Stay on the road, stay on the path. Dukkha... I have a personal quote that I love from Jane Hirschfield. And her quote is, Suffering is to beauty as thirst is to water. Thirst tells us we need to drink. It is our body's own intelligence that leads us to drink water. It is innate. It is present. It can be said that suffering or dukkha is also like that and can lead us toward beauty, to freedom, to ease. So a wise approach, moving with right view, so kind of this is a precursor to right intention, could be the bumper sticker, I stop for suffering. I stop for suffering. So, let's move into groups of five. Not five. Should we cut back to three or four? Okay. Thank you, Chris. All right. So, let's break up into groups of three. So, um, yeah, let's just sort of make small groups close to where you are so we can just turn your chairs, make little triads. And if there's um, a group of four, that's fine. Please don't do a group of two. That'd be too small. I'm going to do, um, I'm going to have people share an example. All week I knew it was one, but when I got up this morning it became 1.30. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. All right. Get settled and make sure you share your names. And um, after you share your names, if you could just come to silence and get settled so I know when I can provide the next set of instructions, that would be super duper. And maybe just take a deep breath here. 
And just to remind those of you who have heard and to share with those of you who haven't heard, this this practice of sharing is a really special, important one and part of our program. It's important in this to consider that, um, number one, when you share whatever you share, you choose to share as much as you feel safe sharing. Do not overshare. Number two, um, what you share, um, you want to make sure you're comfortable with, right? Number three, you don't have to share so much that other people understand all the details. It doesn't matter. Just what you need to say. Number four, when you're listening, please try and just listen receptively. Don't try and plan what you need to say. If your mind starts to think of and associate to what somebody's st- sharing and how you had the same story, try and let go of that and just be present to be a witness, to really receive and take in. It's like mindfulness on, you know, sort of expanded when we have our mindfulness and somebody else's mindfulness. And the more present you are listening, the more it supports awareness in the present moment for the other person. Remember that confidentiality is important. So what's shared in this triad stays in the triad. It doesn't leave the triad. You don't bring it up with a person later. You don't share it with somebody else. That it's really, truly a mindfulness practice to do this, actually. And when we're speaking, we're paying attention to our own experience, witnessing what happens as we speak out loud the thoughts that want to be shared. What happens to our bodies? What happens to our hearts? So having given you this ground sort of kind of framework or right view for this practice, I want to invite each of you to take a moment to contemplate some moderate or minor example of your own personal suffering. Nothing too extreme, please. And as as it comes into view, invite a wise view of the suffering. Which would include some compassion, a sense of caring for your own difficulty. And Just take a moment to ask yourself, is this pain from pain or pain of pain? Is this a pain of change? Or is this the pain of mental construction or all three or any combination? What is this dukkha for me? Do I know? And if you don't know, it's fine. You don't need to know. So we're going to have the first person start. And the first person to start will be the person with the shortest hair. (laughs) All right. We have a first person for every group. 
Yeah? Okay. And then we'll move clockwise. And I'm going to give each a timer of two minutes per person. Right? So two minutes to share about whatever you're aware of about your suffering and whatever you can that might offer a wise view of that suffering. So how is that suffering a rumble strip? How is it an exit sign? How is it like the thirst that can lead to beauty? Okay? Is that clear? Any questions at all? Okay. Please. Please begin. And the Dharma. And maybe just simply turn your chairs this way now. You don't need to rearrange the chairs for right now. So thank you for sharing your energy. I didn't get to really hear anything anybody was saying, but I could appreciated the engagement and the energy here. So I want to just drop in a few questions for reflection. And I'm going to just give a moment of silence following each question. And then we're going to open it up for people to share a little bit before we take a break. Here's the first reflection question. What was it like to speak about your suffering, your dukkha? How was it for your heart, for your body, to listen and to share about dukkha? Could you let in a little, a lot, maybe some of it, none at all, just noticing And what was that like? And for you, when or how might the motto, I break for suffering, be useful? When or how might that be supportive for your practice? Now, just let rise to the surface whatever feels the most meaningful and poignant for you about this sharing, this practice. And... um, We do have microphones and it is really important that we share and speak into these microphones because we are sharing our dharma with others in the audio dharma world. Would anybody be willing to share about this experience and any responses to the reflection questions?
Um, I found it really valuable um, in a sense that when I feel dukkha, then I am dukkha. And when I share it and somebody listens without judgment and, you know, jumping in with advice and yada yada, then I can take a third row seat and step out of it and look at it too. I'm like, ah, it's just a story. And, mm-hmm. and then take more skillful action. Mm-hmm. When I feel dukkha, I am dukkha. <laughs> that was a great quote. <laughs> If you can find somebody who wants the microphone, in the meantime, we'll turn up here. Thank you. What I found really helpful was just naming the suffering. Uh, it's really easy, much easier to release it once you've named it. Yeah, beautiful. It is quite powerful to acknowledge it, right? It's a big part of the practice. Name it, to tame it. Thank you. Somebody over here, take the microphone. Okay, I think somebody over here did, please. I found talking about my own suffering anxiety provoking today. Mm. And I um, second the idea that naming it um, was very helpful. So talking about it was hard, but at some point you had some experience that naming it helped. Do you? Um, is there anything more you could share about what switched or what turned and made it go from very uncomfortable to helpful? I don't think it was a change I think the two existed simultaneously great Great. okay Um, I just I'm having a sinus related problem and I I noticed in the moment it was getting worse as I was experiencing anxiety Uh I think that was maybe the moment that the switch turned on the anxiety stayed there but the awareness the Mm. light I'm getting tingly like, yes. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, when I was speaking about my own suffering, I noticed I started speaking very fast uh-huh. and my heart was racing. Yes. Um, so I was really getting into it, <laughs> even though I wanted to be calm about it. And then listening to others is really felt like strong compassion. Mm. It was hard to not try to interject with advice but I know you want us to not do that so it was good for me to realize this is what it's like to just listen and take it in beautiful beautiful and so this is also we just want to take a moment to highlight how powerful that's the second time that was sort of echoed at least in this sharing how much it can help our own practice our own silent meditation to have the experience that you had so that we start to learn how to just be with our own without having to fix it or jump up and down around it, but just learning how to be with it. And that's part of the letting go. That's part of the second noble truth, right? The clinging and holding on, you know, like cause more suffering and letting go, bring, start to bring ease, which is the third. Yeah.
so let's take one more and then we'll we'll move to maybe two more and then we'll be done okay. thank you forgotten what I was say. <laughs> uh, well Ram said he'd share and maybe you can uh, remember Nancy during his share thank you um, I felt like one of the things that was obstructing my suffering I wrote it down my ego was holding me back from accepting that I have a suffering Mm. The fact that I was articulating was itself relieving. Ah, nice. Did you want to speak, Nancy? Um, okay. All right. Just a question. Can you repeat the three reflective? Sure, sure. Hold on. Um, oh, so, okay, we've got a microphone. So, last, last comment. Thank you. I just all. wanted to mention something real quick. I, I shared part of it. I noticed myself that I was trying to give the whole story, not just, mm. and um, and I was, uh, my body temperature started to rise. Mm-hmm. Um, and afterwards, when I was struck, when we, we were kind of taking a second, I was trying to remind myself it's, uh, it's, it's memories as part of mm-hmm. the past, calm myself down it's not here anymore it's past great memories great so that's working with recognizing the third form of suffering right or the mental construction the pain of construction mental construction seeing that dukkha right great So a lot, there's a rich, this is so rich. There's more that could be shared, more that I could review, but I think it's important to take a break. And Jill, I will share with you the um, reflection questions maybe after uh, we break. Um, so let's take a deep breath. And Tori, yeah, take, take a deep breath. Put your hand on your heart. Appreciate yourself for your practice, for your willingness to turn towards suffering. And Tori has something kind of cool to share with us. Do you have a microphone, Tori? Okay. Do I have to? Okay. So last time we were here, some people expressed uh, interest in having like a chat group. So I set up a Slack group. If uh, Slack is both a website and also a like a smartphone app, um, and it there ha- are different channels so that some people can keep it general on on Dharma base. Some people can can do daily gratitude. So this is not um, official. It's not put on by the teachers. It's not moderated in any way. But um, if you are interested in perhaps like getting to know the sangha better or or meeting in person or something this would be um i'm hoping a forum for us to connect so um you i i cut these little things so you can take one off and if you if you if we run out you can just write down the one on on top so please leave the one on top to pass around or is it should i leave it over by the leave it on the um, where the um donations go okay okay so there it's there 